Psalm 2. Why do the nation ra- nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open to Psalm 2 here together as we give attention to this incredible psalm. Did you hear that? What powerful words. I mean, what striking words at the beginning, what rebellious words, what powerful declaration and decree in the midst of the psalm, and what better words to hear at the end of a psalm that's so serious as this, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is where we get to spend our time this morning, and I hope that you'll give your attention, that you would do more than just give the attention of your mind, but that you would hear this word and you would receive it with faith. You would trust and believe that that God's word is true and that it is of value for you to receive, to trust, to believe, to to be shaped by, to be challenged for, to be corrected in that you would receive God's word here in Psalm 2 this morning. Two weeks ago, I preached on Psalm 1, and uh, it's not too hard to flip back to that, right? We can keep both of these in mind. Psalm 1 was an invitation to discover a source of delight in life that's able to make even the most unhappy, weary souls happy. The, The happy man, we titled that message, rather uh, and the, the happy man is called to not find his own uh, happiness in satisfying his own fleshly appetites, but rather in Psalm 1, he's told to delight himself in the way of the Lord. That if he delights himself, if, if he orients his, his hope of satisfaction to the way of the Lord, he will be satisfied. The happiness Therefore, according to Psalm 1, is directly connected to a reorientation of your delight to the way of your maker as it's revealed in his word. So today, we see very clearly that there are those who do not delight in the Lord. Do you believe that? Is that true? Can you see it? Can you identify it all with that? There are those who reject their maker as Lord altogether, as Lord, okay? They not only do not delight in him and his way, they walk and declare an open rebellion against the Lord, and they try to establish themselves with a a sort of self-sovereignty. 
This is at least some of what Psalm chapter uh, Psalm 2 is putting out for us today, that Psalm 2, we will discover how this uprising turns out for rebels. That's what the Psalm 2 is doing. He's holding out that there are those who re- rebel against the way of the Lord and the delight that can be found in his way. How does that go for them? Do they find the happiness that they seek as they attempt to cast off the bonds of their maker and king? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace, that, that your grace, the grace of your word, a gift to us if we would receive it, works. I thank you that you, you speak a word to rebels. You could have just crushed You could have just acted in in perfect, sovereign, righteous, good justice. But you spoke and you warned. And this psalm is just one part of your word to a people like ourselves. So Lord, I pray that you would give us ears today, everyone and us together and all the places and peoples with whom we associate. Lord, that we would hear the warning. And take a refuge. Thank you, God. We, we trust you that you would work by your word and spirit in the gathering this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. In the name of the King, we pray. Amen. This psalm that's before us, like I said, I hope you still have it open so you can see very quickly. It's organized as four stanzas of three verses each. Verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 6, verses 7 through 9, and 10 through Twelve, four stanzas, four sort of verses, you might say, of a song for us to come to understand. So we're going to begin with the first stanza, verses 1 through 3. They begin with a contrast. It's actually a contrast between verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 6. What we're going to see in this contrast is an inner disposition, an external behavior, and a declaration, first of the people and nations, and then of the Lord. So an inner disposition, an external behavior, and then a final declaration by the people versus the Lord. You can see it right away if you look at the first few verses. Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. What do they say? Let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What's the inner disposition? You can see it, right? Well, the nations and the peoples, they rage. That's the inner disposition. The nations and the peoples are not a happy nation and not a happy peoples. They're raging. Their inner disposition is not delight. It's not peace. It's not rest. They have work to do, they think. They think they've got work to do in order to secure their rest, in order to take hold of their peace and their delight and their joy. Where Psalm 1 spoke of a tree Planted by streams of water, the people of Psalm 2, are, are, they're chafing at the way of the Lord. So Psalm 1 has a man at rest who, is, who doesn't have a work to do, but a faith to receive, right? And he delights in being a, a tree planted by streams of water. He has everything he needs to flourish and be at peace and delight. But the people of Psalm 2, they've got work. They chafe under the bonds 
of the king. Their bones wither, dry up at the thought of life under a rule like that. And so what do they do? Well, that's their inner disposition. What do they do? Their external behavior is to take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. All right, we're going to talk a good bit about the anointed in just a little bit. The anointed, one who is established as a king by the Lord on high. The the external behavior is an image of conspiracy. It really begins in the second half of verse 1 and then on into verse 2. It's a gathering together of the leaders of an army, and they're bolstering their wills to break free from the way of the Lord. It, it, they're, they're sort of gathering these, you got a problem with this? You chafing under the way of the Lord? Yeah, I'm chafing under the way of the Lord. Why don't we get the kings together and see if they're chafing under the way of the Lord and the kings to get together and they conspire and they discuss and they work themselves up into a rage of rebellion, bolstering their wills. Both the man of Psalm 1 and the peoples of Psalm 2 are actually busy people. Now, one is laboring to take, secure something for themselves. The other one is believing that something has been secured, but they're both a sort of labor. They're both the, the, the happy man of, of Psalm 1 and the raging peoples of Psalm 2 have minds that are racing. They're a preoccupied people, preoccupied with a series of thoughts. The man in Psalm 1, it says, meditates. His mind is racing and his heart is full all day and night with the law of the Lord. He's filled up, mind racing, considering the ways of his maker and his sovereign. And the peoples of Psalm 2 can't stop thinking either. But their thoughts are, how can we establish our own way? How can we, how can we throw off the Lord's way and establish our own, and so they make a declaration, the declaration of the peoples. Let's burst their bonds. Let's burst the bonds of the Lord and the king that he establishes. The rule of the Lord and his anointed are seen to be bonds and cords. It really is full-on rebellion at this point. It's a conspiracy to serve themselves. They say that sentence, we so often say that, that on our own, we can live. We can establish ourselves. And the fact is, if you stop for a second, there's nothing shocking about this declaration, this resolution that they've come to. They, they, they really do think that they can do it. The conspiracy is not a contemplated conspiracy. They've resolved to that conspiracy. But something tells me you understand that. You don't find that too terribly shocking to conspire in your mind. How can I throw off the way of the Lord? Because there's something that I want. There is something I have, I've raced through my mind to delight in that is not his way. And I have this inner belief, not of faith in my maker, but in trust in my flesh, that if I had it, I would be satisfied like a tree established by water. And so you rebel. You conspire. But it's actually quite shocking to rebel against the Lord like this. I love Charles Spurgeon's uh, quote on this. Are the bands of omnipotence like green twigs before you? It's essentially what God's about to break out and say. 
in verses four through six are the bands of omnipotence, all power like green twigs before you that you conspire like you do. When the nations and the peoples rebel against the Lord's anointed, they're rebelling against sovereign authority of the king of kings. The key word really is sovereign, sovereign authority. How does one cast off absolute sovereignty? How does someone cast off and break the bonds of the absolute sovereignty of God, the king and maker of all things? Rightly does the psalm, down in verse 10, counsel the, we, the, the kings, be wise and be warned. <laughs> it would be, we, we would be, the kings of this passage would be well warned by Charles Spurgeon's quote, uh, bonds of omnipotence are like green twigs. Really? Surely it's folly to cast off such sovereignty. Psalm 1, um, when when, uh, when When rid of the Lord's constraints, compare, what what are we free to do? If If we do manage to break free of the bonds of the Lord and his way, what are we now free to do? Let's remember that his way is things like, you know, don't murder. You know, don't, don't like steal. Don't, don't covet. Be satisfied with his abundant, gracious provision. Be satisfied in glory and not in lesser things. What are we now free to do? Certainly not good, sweet, generous, or pleasing things. Are we now free if we break the bonds of the sovereign Lord, our maker, and his way? Are we now free to live in a beautiful world? Or have we not essentially established an awful life, an awful nation? It's not the good life at all. It's not the blessed man. No, this is the one who, who walks in the counsel of the wicked, who, who stands in the way of sinners, who sits in the seat of scoffers of Psalm 1. It's not the man who is established. It's not the blessed man. His delight is not to walk in the way of the Lord. To, his, his meditation is upon his own way and his own delight day and night, how to plot to overthrow the way of the Lord. His delight is not in the law. His delight, his meditation is the casting off of the law giver. So I'd ask you before we move on, do you, I'm asking you, asking me, do you love the yoke of the Lord? Do you love his way? Do you love being under that sovereign rule? Do you love his kingdom? Do you love his king? Or is it possible that in all honesty, you do have at least some identification with these nations and peoples? Well, what's going on here? Let's continue. Let's look look at verses four through six. Let's contrast the Lord's response with the establishment of the people, the disposition, the work, and the declaration of the Lord. The, The inner disposition of the Lord is what? He who sits in the heavens laughs. That's the inner disposition. The nations are raging, and he's laughing. The, the nations and the people, they're beside themselves, raging, plotting. They're fitful, and they have no rest. But now it's the Lord's turn to scoff at the plans of rebels. The great theologian and philosopher Bob Dylan, hopefully you caught that, 
of every earthly plan that be known to man. He is unconcerned. He's got plans of his own to set up his throne. When he returns, he laughs. He scoffs. He's unconcerned. Oh, but the angels come, and did you hear what's going on in the nations of the earth and the peoples that rage and fit and plot? (laughs) Unconcerned. So what's his external work? What is the work of one who is unconcerned? He speaks. He speaks. Verse 5, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And he says a word, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill, where the people out of their vain inner plotting, they take counsel together, they vie for some sort of control. The Lord simply laughs and then speaks. He doesn't take counsel. He doesn't strain together for control. His wrath and his fury are sure. They are as steady as his ability to speak, and he speaks words, and his wrath and his fury are sure. It's as simple, it's a calm, a continued execution of his own divine purposes. And if his own divine purposes meet rebels, well, rebels are about to meet fury. Make no mistake, the casting down of every rebellion is a very much settled part of God's eternal divine purpose. You who would respond, yes, I love the yoke of the Lord. Yes, I love his eternal ways. Do you know that his eternal divine plan is to speak a word and by that word put down once and for all every rebellion. Do you love that? Do you love that about our great God and his eternal divine purpose? And here's, here's the, the crooks of his, of his statement, all right? This is what is his final declaration. I have established my king. Where the people make bold boasts of what they will do, the Lord says what he has done. You see, they conspire. We're going to get together, and man, we're going to throw off your cords. I mean, we've got a lot of kings and a lot of peoples, Lord, and your anointed. And the Lord's declaration is, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I think that there's something important for us here that, that points to a historic foundation for our present and future hope. We stand on something that is completed, that's perfect as its declaration. The picture is of people's fitting, raging, plotting, planning, straining, conspiring together. They make bold, bold boasts. And all of that is found, has this great foundation among the nations and the peoples. And what is the great foundation of all their plotting? Hatred and rage. Yeah, just a bunch of people angry. And that's the great foundation of their sovereign authority. Meanwhile, the Lord, unconcerned, he holds back their rage with a simple restatement of his sovereign will. The Lord has willed, the Lord has worked, so it will be now and forever. 
The Lord, having established his anointed in Zion, does not come up with a new plan now that he hears that there is a rebel resistance. Do you see? He, why is he unconcerned? Because nothing has changed. He is the Lord, and he has a Messiah. And that's it. His first plan remains the only plan. He has set his king, and so his king will be set. There is only one thing, the only thing about which we can be absolutely confident. I would suggest it's not in the raging and anger and hatred of rebels. Where's the confidence there? The one thing that we can be confident of is that the Lord has ordained something to come to pass. And if the Lord has established his anointed, so his anointed will be established. Anointed, Messiah, Christ. If he establishes his king, his king is established. The only thing that remains is to laugh at all who would conspire otherwise. In light of God's perfect sovereignty, I want to consider for a moment our future hope and our present salvation. We actually enact this week after week, together, in communion. Why do we celebrate communion every week? It, it is merely, it, it, it is a, a celebration and a remembering of something that has been established 2,000 years ago, right? But it's so much more. In communion, we remember that because this is what the sovereign Lord has done, because this is his decree, the giving of the Son on a cross, the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of our sin, this is what will be. We can rage. There are nations and peoples that can rage and and hate the word of that good news, that gospel, and the Lord laughs, and he simply declares, this is what is. These are my redeemed. They are washed and kept by a final declaration for all of eternity. The Lord has chosen grace to rule for all time on the basis of that sacrifice. So, you who have taken refuge in that grace are saved today because the sovereign work of the Lord in history, his decree and his sure work, and you will be saved in the future. Not because you kept the faith. Do you see? You are saved in the future because the Lord has decreed it is so. And he's worked it so. That is our hope. That is why it is called faith. It's not faith because we can't see it, but we believe it anyway. That's stupid. If that's why you believe, you've got some work to do to establish a real faith on what is known. The Lord has decreed it. Faith is to say, I believe he'll do it. I believe he's actually omnipotent, not the nations and the peoples and my own sinful heart. Faith is to believe that he's the omnipotent one. He wins. And if he's called me to be his people, so it will be. That's faith. That's why it's by grace. That's what he does. Through faith that we are saying, yes, that for me, that for me. This is a glimpse at the hope, the good news of the psalm. 
But there is yet remaining a clear bit of bad news. We have to go there. You see, sin and the sinner and the nations and the peoples, they shake their fist at God and say, on our own, we can live. I'll cast off the Lord. I'll establish my own sovereign if I have to establish that in my own person. And that is natural to the fallen human disposition. Every man, woman, and child know what it is to rise up in ourselves and our flesh. How does the eternal sovereign respond? He laughs. He's not shaken. But his action is wrath and fury. The image is not of one who flies off the handle in rage or loses control at the thought of rebellion. Oh, no, rebellion. I'm so angry to hear about that. No, he's sure He knows his decree. He laughs. And then he enacts his decree to put down rebellion. It is a calculated response of a perfect sovereign. The Lord laughs. The Lord has worked. And so it will be. And friends, that's not good news for sinners. Not good news. Not not, not good news for rebels, for those who are disposed to, to rebellion like myself. Those who chafe under the yoke of our sovereign Lord. So let's consider verses 7 through 9. Here we see the king's confidence. We have another speaker who's introduced. Now, uh, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. So we have the Lord speaking, and he's speaking to the anointed. The Lord's anointed, literally Messiah or Christ, now speaks. He recalls the decree of the Lord to establish his kingdom forever. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. There's much to be considered in this psalm. There's much that we could reflect upon in history. But the word itself gives us the final interpretation the final interpretation comes from Acts chapter 13, verse 33. Acts 13, 33 says, This he, that is Jesus, has fulfilled to us their children by raising... the Lord, I'm sorry, the, the Father has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. When is that fulfilled? When is it fulfilled? At the raising of Jesus. That's when... The anointed is called this. It is as Jesus, raised from the dead, having vanquished the foes on on the cross, having won victory over sin, over death, and the devil, that he is raised to a throne as the anointed one. At that moment, he is the anointed one, having accomplished the decree of the Father. And the, the, the psalm tells us three things about the anointed one. The first thing it tells us, he's son. It's not until the appearing of Jesus that we truly understand that this is not mere metaphor. He is God, the Son. The Son of God is more than a human whom God deeply cares about or makes promises to. The Son of God is truly God, the Son. We see this in Matthew twice. This is my beloved Son. In Matthew in 14, truly, you are the Son of God. Hebrews 1, 2, you are my son. We see that the anointed is God, the son. Secondly, we see that he's king. God, the son, who is Jesus, God, the God man, has been raised from the dead. He's ascended to the throne of heaven, and he will reign there forever. 
He is God the Son, who is established as king, and the nations rage. But he will, the, the Lord will make for the king the nations his inheritance, his heritage. The time will come when Jesus will rule and establish his heavenly rule on earth, and he will bring every nation under his good sovereignty, and there will be no rebellion, because every rebellion has been put down by whom? The king. That's who. The ends of the earth, your possession. There's no corner of the earth in which rebellion will remain. All things are brought into alignment under his complete sovereignty. Meditate on that. And you know what you're meditating on? The whole earth delighting in the way of the Lord. Imagine a whole earth where every rebellion and every rebellious heart and conspiracy is put down in all delight in the good way of the sovereign. That's what we're talking about here. But there's a final thing. He's also, he's son, yes, it's true. He's king, yes, it's true. He's also a warrior. Don't miss it. Verse nine, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You're right, what we are right to speak a great deal about salvation. We ought to reflect upon forgiveness. We ought to reflect upon grace. We should, and that is the final word. But we would be wrong to speak only of that way about the sovereignty of the Lord who is the Messiah. There is salvation. We're gonna come to that in just a moment. But the first thing that rebels ought to hear in this psalm is that the Messiah, the anointed one, is a warrior. We ought to hear that. And in just a moment, we ought to be warned by that. Rebels who remain in the rebellion when the king returns, they are the ones who ought to be concerned. They will not be permitted to endure. This has been decreed. It's sure I hope you're not missing how amazing the psalm is. Psalm 1 and 2 are a gateway to all of the psalms. What a beautiful gateway to walk through, the blessed man and the glorious king. We're given a glimpse into the counsel and decrees of heaven. Did you hear that? See, I wasn't there. I don't have ears that reach that high. I'm not eternal not omnipotent, I'm not wise, I'm not all-knowing, neither are you. We have no access to the degrees of heaven except that he make them known. That's what Psalm 2 is to us. We can know the wise counsel, the final decree of the Lord and of his anointed. The Father turns to the Son and grants him the whole earth as an eternal inheritance. The design of created history is that the son will reign. That's the decree. And now we know this is what will be. And and our business is to align ourselves underneath of that decree and ask, is it good or bad? Ought we harbor resentment or ought we receive it with trust and faith? Well, let's continue. Verses 10 through 12, where we see the psalm itself tells us what we ought to do with that. It's the psalm's application. Look at verses 10 and 11. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear 
and rejoice with trembling. That's, that's interesting, <laughs> right? <laughs> Serve him with fear. I mean, you recognize what's going on here. He has an eternal decree. Perfect service is the, is the news for the day. It's the way to live in light of that sovereign king. Perfect service. Rejoicing. He's worthy. He's glorious. He is great, and his way is good. Rejoice in that, and nothing else. That's the, the rule for the day. It's the rule for eternity. The purpose of the psalm is a warning and a call to wisdom. Yes, all you kings of the earth, all you dictators and tyrants, all you democracies and republics, all you national sovereigns and you who are not sovereign, your nation has a king. You have been handed over to the Lord's anointed for your rebellion. So serve him, all you nations and peoples, Serve him as your sovereign and king. This is what he is. All you nations, all you peoples. And you say, well, thank goodness I'm not a dictator. <laughs> thank goodness I'm not a ruler. You say to yourselves, okay, how about this one? All you self-sovereigns. Oh, I get that one. Especially in the culture in which I live. I understand what it is to be hyper-individualistic where I'm the only one who rules and reigns. I understand that disposition. All you wicked sinners and scoffers, you who plot in vanity to delight in your own way in opposition to the Lord, all you self-sovereigns, be wise. Be warned, O self-rulers. Who are you in this psalm? Are you the... Perhaps the self-sovereign rebel? Are we the peoples who plot in vain? And then we have this transformative moment. Verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way. And I'm still freaking out. Like this is not, this is not good news. Like I have to be, have perfect service. I have to have absolute unwavering rejoicing. I'm supposed to kiss the son unless he's going to be angry at me. And a parish, his wrath is quickly kindled. In other words, there is no maneuvering around the absolute sovereignty of the Lord. To waver is to be a rebel. This is terrifying so far. And then this, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Man, we're finally to one that there, I have a difficult time understanding how it makes sense, but I know how to do it. <laughs> I know how to cower down in fear and take refuge. I don't know how to serve perfectly. I don't know how to rejoice with a full delight. I don't know how to, to honor a sovereign in a perfect kissing of the sun that he wouldn't be angry, but I do know how to cower I do know how to take refuge. I do know how to run for my own life. Suddenly in that last short sentence, we have something unexpected. Can this be, we ought to ask, the same Lord who breaks and dashes enemies, can he also be a refuge for nations and peoples? Is that possible? How does that work? 
The logic of the psalm's application is clear. In order to find refuge from the king, one must take refuge in the king. The logic of the psalm is clear. And this is terrifying on so many fronts. It is truly a matter for faith alone. The Lord has said many things in this psalm. He's offered up his decree. He's said what he's going to do about rebels. And then he says this last thing. Is it true that there's refuge to be found in this terrible, awesome, glorious king, this absolute sovereign? I would offer to you three things. It's terrifying to take refuge in the Lord because, first of all, if I'm honest, it's terrifying because it means laying down my own way. How many times have we plotted, turned over in our minds and in our beds the wayward desires of our own hearts? You ever woken up in the morning and know what's before you and know what the way of the Lord is? And know what the way of your inner desires are? You toss and turn as you consider your way. To turn to the Lord as sovereign king, to kiss the son, is to trust that there is greater happiness and delight in his way under his authority than in continued pursuit of our own way of rebellious self-sovereignty. It is a terrible, terrifying thing to die to self and to trust in the Lord. See, it's not, I want you to hear this because it would be so easy to, to misunderstand It's not about your labor. It's not about your deeds. It's not about your obedience. It is about your trust in the way of the Lord. Do you trust that there is refuge to be found under his good rule? That will play itself out in your behaviors. Oh, yeah, it will, or else you don't trust him. Or else that's that's called pretending to trust and rebelling in your heart and looking for an out as you conspire for your own way. No. It's to lay down the self and take take up the way of the Lord. Second way, it's terrifying. It's terrifying to kiss the son and to take refuge in him because it means that we break with the rebels' camp. The nations and the peoples rage. The nations and the peoples plot together. To take refuge in the Lord means that we will be, you will be seen as a turncoat. You will be seen in your submission to the Lord as one who is siding with an enemy sovereign, according to the way of the rebels' camp. It is a terrifying thing in this world of rebels to be seen as one who kisses the sun. Man, there'd better be refuge. There'd better be refuge in that perfect sovereign. You see why it's faith? I believe, Lord, the way of the rebel is going down. I don't want to be found in that camp. And I heard, I heard a whisper of a way to take refuge right there in my former enemy's camp, in your camp, my sovereign Lord. And I'm running that way. Will you receive me? In the midst of all the cries around me, turncoat, rebel against the rebellion. There's a third way that it's terrifying. And I think that really this is, this is the center It's terrifying to kiss the son and to take refuge in him because to take refuge in the king is to admit that we're rebels who deserve wrath and fury. Fundamentally, this is our biggest problem. 
If I run for refuge in the king, I'm admitting that I need refuge. Why do I need refuge in the king? Well, because I was a rebel. And what did he say he does to rebels? Wrath and fury. But he also says there's refuge in him. That's a terrifying thing. To run to the one from whom we deserve absolute perfect justice. And all we have is a whiff is the whisper of the news of refuge. How do you kiss the son who's right and just to break and dash you? The psalmist, it is a matter of faith. It's to trust that there is some mercy, some grace known to the king by which rebels who lay down arms find refuge in the sovereign. It's simply faith, a trust of a whisper of refuge. But for us, we have something even more. We have the revelation of the great mystery of the news of refuge. We have the mystery revealed. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 say this so profoundly. Write that down in Psalm 2 in your margin and go there. Reflect on it. Continue Psalm 1 singing by going to Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 7. In him, the Christ, the anointed one, Jesus, God, the Son, In him we have redemption through his blood. That's how. You see in verse 12 in Psalm 2, all we have is, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I hope so. I sure, I don't know how in the world is a righteous, holy, perfect sovereign against whom I have rebelled my refuge. But he says it, I'm gonna trust it. And that faith, unites them to a grace they haven't yet seen, has not yet been revealed. But in Ephesians, that grace is revealed. It's through his blood. That's how. Blessed are all who take refuge in him through his blood. What's that mean? Well, it's the forgiveness of your trespasses. And then we're ready to fill in the next part. We know this. It's according to the riches of his grace. It's not according to anything I did. I'm a rebel. And I just heard a whiff of refuge. And then I found out what it is, and we could fill in with with song of praise. It could fill in the portion of our rejoicing. It's according to the riches of his grace that he's lavished upon us in all his wisdom and insight that he has made known to us. The mystery of his will has been made known in the anointed one. According to his purpose, his decree, his purpose of redemption, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The rebel finds refuge in the Son because the Son himself was broken and dashed. Man, now I get Psalm 2. That Psalm 2 is about what happens to rebels. And the Son has taken the place of rebels for all who take refuge in him. He was broken. He was dashed. It was the Son himself who hung on a cross as a rebel. There's so much more to the decree of verse 7 than simply the establishment of a king. 
the Lord, the sovereign, the king of the universe, who wasn't just decreeing down with rebels, he was decreeing redemption, knows that the decree of redemption was that the son himself would not only receive a kingdom, but that he would accomplish and secure and purchase that kingdom by laying down his life for the rebels against that kingdom. To take refuge in the king, to kiss the son is truly a matter of faith. And those who take refuge in him by faith are filled with eternal praise and joy. Blessed is the man. It's a matter of a trust in the word of the Lord that there is actually refuge to be found in the king, our sovereign. Every once in a while, I feel like I've written something that communicates, and then I go off and I read something that John Piper wrote about it. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll go ahead and read that too. <laughs> Hear this from John Piper reflecting on this very psalm. The only safe place from the wrath of God is in God. Everywhere outside of his care is dangerous. He's the only hiding place from his own wrath. If you see him as frightening and try to run away and hide, you will not find a place to hide. There is none. Outside of God's care, there's only wrath. But there is a refuge from the wrath of God, namely God. The safest place from the wrath of God, the only safe place is God. Come to God. Take refuge in God. Hide in the shadow of his wings. This is where we live and serve with joyful trembling. It's terrible and it's wonderful. It's like the eye of a hurricane. Terror all around and totally beautiful and calm. Here there is sweet fellowship. Here is quiet, loving communion. Here we speak to him as a friend. Here he ministers to our deepest needs. There is an invitation. No, that's not enough, John. There is a warning. There is a call to be wise. And there is a truth to be received with faith. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Lay down your rebellion. Take refuge in the Lord. This, this is your joy, your hope, established on his eternal decree today and forever. Heavenly Father, your word is true and good. And you've spoken so clearly a warning for a peoples like ourselves. I thank you, God, that by your design, the people in this room, including myself, live in light of the revelation of the mystery. I thank you for the call to believe. I thank you for the faith in this room to believe. We behave, we walk, not as those who are just. We behave, we walk as those who are easily distracted. We wrestle with the old man, even as we are made new in Christ and by your Spirit. Lord, I pray that today we would confess again there is refuge, there's refuge in the Lord, that you would bless us there and that you would keep us there. 
that we would know the joy of the fellowship of all the peoples who find themselves under that one sovereign Jesus Christ, the anointed God the Son. Thank you, Lord. I pray for all of those here today who have not believed, who continue on in their rebellion and have not, perhaps are trying to find a way to make it up to God, perhaps looking for a way to to quietly lay down a rebellion rather than recognizing we are already rebels. And I pray that you would invade that heart, that your spirit would confirm this one singular good news, faith in the news of your grace, faith in your gospel. Lord, I pray that you would do that miraculous work in our midst today as we pray this in Jesus, the sovereign's name. Amen.